Amen. Well, I'm really glad to see you this morning, and I hope you have your Bible with you and that you'll open it to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4 is where we're at today. Last week, we wrapped up a two-week look at the most difficult text in 1 Peter, uh, which is one of the most difficult texts in the New Testament. I've noted that a few times over the last few weeks, and I, I was thinking this week, man, 1 Peter has been some tough preaching. It really has been. Some of it has been hard to understand, and so we've had to work hard like we did the last couple of weeks. Some of 1 Peter has been really easy to understand, but very countercultural, really like challenging our comfort zones, really stepping on our toes. 1 Peter has not been easy, but it's been good. 1 Peter has not been easy, but it's been timely. 1 Peter has not been easy, but it's been helpful. And so I'm super thankful that you are on this journey with me through 1 Peter. Trust that the Lord has much more to say to us as we finish out this summer. Here's a summary of chapter 3, verses 18 to 22, that hard text that we've looked at over the last few weeks. I shared this with you last week. I want to share it again. It's a summary of the text and also it guided our application last week. I said this is the promise. This text is the promise of salvation from the coming judgment through faith in the person and work of Jesus in light of persecution and opposition from the unbelieving world. That's what the text is about. And as such, it serves as an encouragement to the church in a few areas. First, it serves as an encouragement to us to persevere and endure with confidence. Secondly, to proclaim the hope of salvation to unbelievers. And thirdly, what we'll look at today is it serves as an encouragement to live with Christ-like righteousness in our practical living. And also, it serves not just as an encouragement to the church, but also as an offer of salvation to all who would believe in Jesus Christ. And so to use the language of the text from last week as we looked at Noah uh, and the flood, I said, get in the boat. It's, a, it's an invitation to get in the boat, to say that the flood is coming, the flood of judgment is coming, and there is only one way of deliverance, and it's through Jesus Christ. And so we say, come to Jesus, repent of your sins, trust in him, get on the boat, and be saved. Well, this week we're going to move into a new chapter. It's a new paragraph as it's outlined in all of your translations. But please do not think for one second that what we're going to look at today is a new line of thinking. In fact, it's best to just keep reading through as if Peter doesn't even take a breath as he moves for more application for the elect exiles who were scattered throughout Asia Minor. Today he's going to call his audience, he's going to call us to holiness to practical, observable holiness that flows out of our relationship, our union with Christ. Peter's going to call his audience to pursue this holiness, even if it results in increased hostility from the world. In fact, there seems to be a vague implication that some have already or could in the very near future be martyred in this process. As they pursue holiness, that they would be killed by their neighbors for their stand with the Lord Jesus Christ. Nonetheless, even in light of that, Peter urges them on in holiness with the promise of eternal life we'll see at the end of the text. This, what we will look at today in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4, is a word that we need. It is not, however, a word that we like. Holy living is not popular. Even within the church, talk about living with holiness, living with practical righteousness is not popular even within the church. Holy living is not selling a lot of books right now nor is it crowding a lot of auditoriums right now. But holy living is expected. Holy living is necessary. Holy living is commanded. And so that's what we will let God call us to today from his word. Lord, give us open ears and soft hearts to receive this. 
Let's read it together in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. That's our study today. God's word says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you have chosen us according to your foreknowledge. You have called us out of darkness into your glorious light. You have caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. You've made us your children. And you have counted us holy, righteous, by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are in awe of this. And we are forever grateful. And you have also called us to live this new life with Christ-likeness. You have commanded us to be holy. Lord, help us to hear that call today. Lord, give us soft hearts. Lord, grant us repentance. Lord, help us to live with holiness in a world that is full of sin. Help us to live with holiness as we fight our own flesh. Lord, help us to live with holiness for the glory of your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our approach for the text today is going to be to look at verse at a time. One verse at a time, and there is so much for us to see here today. Notice in verse 1, the first word is therefore. And this shows us that the text that we're in today is connected to the text from the past few weeks. In fact, it's not just connected to what we've looked at over the last couple of weeks in verses 18 to 22. No, this reaches further back and makes application. Peter is going to make application of all the talk he's already spoken about the suffering of Jesus and all of the call to the holiness, to holiness of his people. Notice also the text says, Christ suffered in the flesh. We've talked a lot about this already. How Christ in his suffering in the flesh is our substitute. That is, he paid the penalty for our sins in order to bring us to God. Remember celebrating that a couple weeks ago? By his suffering, he brought us to God. How can sinful man and holy God be in right relationship? It is only through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ that sinful man can be brought to the holy God. Christ suffered in the flesh as our substitute, and Christ suffered in the flesh as our example. We've talked about this some already back in chapter 2, verse 21. You look at it in 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 21 says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Now, while the exemplary side 
of Christ's suffering seems to be emphasized in the text that we're looking at today, we need to take these two facets of the suffering of Christ together always. We need to never separate them. We need to never talk only about Christ as our substitute or only about Christ as our example. He is both our substitute by which we are brought to God and our example to show us how to live. His substitutionary sacrifice accomplishes our justification where we are declared righteous in the courtroom of God. Before the throne of God, we are declared righteous because of Christ's sacrifice for us. And his exemplary suffering directs and empowers our sanctification, where we grow in righteousness. So his atoning sacrifice for our justification and his exemplary suffering for our sanctification, where we grow in righteousness. Notice this text not only talks about Christ's suffering in the flesh, but it calls us to arm ourselves with this same purpose. That phrase, arm yourselves, is the only imperative in the six verses we're going to look at today. It is the call to action. It is the call to obedience. It is the command to be obeyed. Arm yourselves. My translation, New American Standard, says, arm yourselves with this same purpose. ESV says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. NIV says, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. CSB says, arm yourselves also with the same understanding. So Peter here is calling us to arm ourselves with the same mindset, the same way of thinking, the same attitude, the same understanding, the same purpose that Christ had in his suffering. We see in in Christ's way of thinking a dedication to holy living. One of the things we see as we chart Jesus, as we follow Jesus through the Gospels, is that he was dedicated to holy living. Christ had a commitment to fight sin, to pursue holy living by fighting sin. Think with me of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Think with me even of just one part of that temptation where he was directly tempted by the devil. Think with me about the temptation to satisfy his physical hunger By turning stones into bread. Read it with me in Matthew chapter 4. Starting in verse 2 says, And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he became hungry. Just think about that for a second. 40 days and 40 nights. Would you be hungry? Yeah. 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you're the son of God, command that these stones become bread. That's quite a temptation, right? It's quite a temptation on a couple of levels. One, he was physically hungry, right? And he could have satisfied that hunger by turning those stones into bread. That's one level of the temptation. The other level of the temptation is the challenge, if you are the son of God. Oh, he is the son of God. He is the son of God. And so by virtue of that, he could have turned those stones into bread. This is quite a temptation. But look at how it goes. Verse 4. But Jesus answered and said, it is written... Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He wasn't about to give in to the temptation of the devil. None of the temptations of the devil. In fact, the author of Hebrews rejoices in this. In his letter, he says, he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was dedicated. He was committed to fighting sin. In fact, right after this, right after Matthew chapter 4, in Matthew chapter 5, he invites his followers to ruthless, aggressive resistance of sin. After he himself resisted sin in the temptation of the devil, he calls his followers to do the same thing with great aggression. Look at it in Matthew chapter 
5, starting in verse 21. Jesus says, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Part of the way of thinking in Christ was a dedication to holy living. And part of that dedication to holy living is a commitment to fight against sin in the negative. And part of that dedication to holy living is a submission to God's will in the positive. He was all about obeying the Father. He was all about doing the will of the Father. And he was all about doing the will of the Father even when it was hard, even when it hurt. There's no better example of this than the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Where Jesus submits himself to do the will of the Father even when it's hard and even when it hurt. Look at that scene in Mark chapter 14. It says in verse 32, they came to a place called named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here until I've prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John. Peter is there for this. Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. He was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. I want you to see that Jesus, in his mindset, had a dedication to holy living, had a commitment to fight sin, had a submission to the will of God. I also want you to see that in Christ's way of thinking, there was endurance through persecution with joy because of eternal vindication. Once you see that Christ's way of thinking, there was endurance through persecution with joy, with joy through the persecution because of eternal vindication. Again, the author of Hebrews paints this great picture in chapter 12, verse 1. He says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. One of the things we see about the mindset of Jesus was endurance through persecution with joy because of eternal vindication. And Peter has already talked about this. In chapter 2, we read it just a second ago, starting at verse 21. He says to his readers, You've been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin or was any deceit found in his mouth, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. 
And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We see in Christ's way of thinking a dedication to holy living, negatively a commitment to fight sin, positively a submission to God's will, and we also see in Christ's way of thinking endurance through persecution with joy because of eternal vindication. And it is this mindset of Christ that Peter is calling us to arm ourselves with. Now the key to knowing the mindset of Christ is the consistent practice of personal spiritual disciplines. You will only know the mind of Christ as you come to know Christ. And you will only come to know Christ as you walk with him in a life of personal spiritual disciplines. R.C. Sproul says this, I know no other way to gain the mind of Christ than to immerse ourselves in his word. He goes on and says, we have to search the scriptures And this is a serious matter. We cannot simply find the mind of Christ in 15 minutes a day. So there's a reason why this section, when we're talking about the mind of Christ, what is the mind of Christ, there's a reason why I read 15 different passages of Scripture to you in the midst of this. Because we know the mind of Christ from His Word. We only know the mind of Christ from His Word. It is this mindset of Christ that we are to arm ourselves with. And let's talk about that for a minute. Peter calls the people to arm yourselves with this same way of thinking. That's military language. It's military language, and Peter actually has quite a bit of military language in this letter. The New Testament has quite a bit of military language, but I want us to be careful with this. I want us to be careful with this military language so that we do not fall into the same mistake that many Christians around us are making right now. When they are adapting a militant mindset against the world around them. I think this is a problem. I think it's a problem when Christians adapt a military, militant mindset against the world around them. Our militant aggressions are not against other people's sin, especially those who don't even claim to be redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Why would we be surprised when our lost neighbors live ungodly lives? That should not be a shock to us. They are just doing what comes naturally to them. We are not called in the Bible to make war against them. We are called to make war within, against our own sinful tendencies. I think there are a lot of church leaders today that are stirring people up, mobilizing them to adopt a militant attitude toward the lost world around them, to take up arms and fight against the sin that is out there, like it's us versus them somehow. And all the while... They're ignoring the consistent call of the New Testament to take up arms and fight the sin in here. That's the call of the New Testament. Fight the sin that is in here, like in my own heart and in my own life and maybe even in this very church. Nearly all the language, the military language in the New Testament is employed in the internal battle between the flesh and the spirit. To say it another way, maybe to warn you more plainly. When we fight sin out there, while we ignore sin in here, we make ourselves the worst kind of hypocrites. And no one is brought to the kingdom of God. We've seen plenty of this on display within the SBC over the last few weeks. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Peter said plainly, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. 
for like six weeks in a row, this was one of the applications. There is a war within. There is a war within, and it is for your soul. Fleshly lusts waging war against your soul. And here, Peter uses similar language, and he says, arm yourselves. Arm yourselves for that war with the mind of Christ. Arm yourselves with the mindset of the Lord Jesus Christ. Read on. It says, because he was suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, there's some people that think that Peter has gone here from talking to and about his audience, the believers, to now back to talking about Jesus as if Jesus is the one who has ceased from sin. I don't think that's what's going on here. Grammatically, that's a hard hard connection to make. This is still a reference to the believers, his audience, to whom he is writing. Suffering in the flesh because of holiness, which you're going to see see referred to later in the text. He's going to say, some of you are suffering Some of you are being maligned by your neighbors because of your holiness. Because you won't go with them in the same flood of debauchery that they go into. And they malign you because of this. Suffering in the flesh like that is good evidence that you've made a real break from sin into new life that is yours in Christ. To say it a different way, willingness to suffer for godliness is the mark of a real new life. It indicates that you're no longer living for sin. If you're willing to suffer for righteousness' sake... That is a good mark that you have ceased from sin. You are done with sin. H.B. Charles Jr. says this. He says, we are a walking civil war. We are walking civil wars. There will be many times you have to decide between sin and suffering. The one who arms himself with the mindset of Christ will be able to say no to sin and yes to God. And I would add, even if that decision results in suffering. Even if if that decision results in hostility from the world, even if that decision leads to your martyrdom, you've made a break from that old way of life. And so you will walk with Jesus in holiness, even if it costs you, even if it costs you dearly. Read on in verse two, talking about this new life versus the old life. He says, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. This is why, this is why Peter is calling us to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. Our conversion marked the beginning of the rest of our lives. A new day dawned when you became a new creation in Christ Jesus. And the call here is to live the rest of your time in this body, to live the rest of your time on this earth in a brand new way. No longer for the lusts of men, which are going to be outlined in the next few verses if you needed explanation. No longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Notice in this text the many lusts of men. The plural, lusts of men. And notice the singular, will of God. No longer for all that, now only for this. No longer for all of those things, now only for this one thing, the will of God. Karen Job says, Peter's readers face the choice of either taking the path of least resistance, going along with the values, norms, and practices acceptable and expected by their society, or being obedient to God and suffering the consequences of criticism and condemnation by unbelieving family and friends. Their willingness to suffer this way therefore demonstrates that they have resolved to be through with sin. My question is, have you resolved to be through with sin? Has you, have you resolved to no longer live for the lusts of men, but for the will of God? To use the language of Jesus, have you left the broad road that leads to destruction? And are you walking the narrow road that leads to life? Look what he says in Matthew chapter 7. By the way, I quoted from 
Matthew chapter 4, and then from Matthew chapter 5. That is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. He starts here, and he ends here in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. Look at verse 13. Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. The narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. There are many who are going to go that way. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. I hope that's you. I hope that's you who have entered through the narrow gate by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and are walking the narrow road that may lead to hostility from the world, but it leads to life. I hope that's the way you're walking. He elaborates more in verse 3 when he says, For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued the course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Peter has already been making references to this old way of life. The old way of life for these new creations in Christ. He's already been making references to this back in chapter 1. Starting in verse 14, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in ignorance. Those old lusts of men that were your lusts, but it was in ignorance. But like the Holy One who has called you, Be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. In verse 17, he says, If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. That futile way of life that you inherited from your forefathers but you were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished, spotless, the blood of Jesus Christ. He's already been talking about this old life, what's in the rearview mirror. And here he reemphasizes it by saying, the time already passed is sufficient for all of that. He uses the word Gentile here, not in an ethnic sense, but in a spiritual sense to refer to those who do not know God. That's how they live. Those who do not know God, that's how they live. How should we expect the people who who do not know God to live? We should expect them to live just like we did before we came to know God. We should expect them to live for the lusts of men, as Peter said in the previous verse. So if they are given to debaucheries listed above, it should not surprise us. Church, it should not surprise us when lost people live ungodly lives. When we hear stories about the world and its systems doing and embracing and endorsing worldly things, that should not be a shock to us. Lost people are going to live like lost people. But this text is not written to lost people. This text is written to you who have been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You are to be different in the time You spent living like them, no matter how long or short it was, that was enough. That was enough time. No more of that. Some of you walked that Gentile road for a long time. And you read this text and you say, amen. Amen, that was enough. It was empty. It was futile. It didn't satisfy me like I thought it was going to. I tried it all and it all left me wanting. Tell that story. Some of you who have that story, you need to tell that story. You need to tell the story of how you tried to fill what was lacking in your life with all the things the world had to offer, and you found that it was futile. You found that there was emptiness out there in the world. 
Pastor Dylan was talking about this, having, having been converted as a grown man, talked about remembering who he once was. And he said, I remember how much I thought that stuff was bringing me life. I remember how I thought that stuff was bringing me life and joy and gladness, but now my eyes are open. The sin that promised joy and life led me to the grave. That's what we sing, and that is the truth. Some of you walked that road for a long time, and you say amen to what Peter is talking about here. Others of you were converted, as I was, in childhood. But even we need to realize that our seven or eight years apart from God were seven or eight years of enmity with God that deserved the fullness of the wrath of God. We need to realize that we were not minor league sinners needing minor league salvation. We need to be careful that we don't try to go out and get ourselves a testimony for fear that we don't have a powerful testimony. If you were like me and God was gracious to save you as a child, praise the Lord. That is a miracle of miracles. It is a miracle that he saved you at all and what grace he showed to save you early and spare you from some of these things that other people walked in. Oh, praise the Lord. Some of you were converted early to the glory of God. Some of you read this part of the text, and the truth of the matter is you're claiming to be converted, and you're walking just like this. Like your life is marked currently by debaucheries of all kinds, sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. You claim to be converted, but are walking just like the Gentiles walk. Here's what I want you to hear me say. Enough of that. The time for that is up. You have walked there long enough. Repent and make war within. Make war with those desires that are leading you that direction, those fleshly lusts that are leading you into the lifestyle of the Gentiles. Make war against that and be holy. Arm yourselves with the mindset of Christ who was committed to holy living, resisting sin and pursuing obedience to God and was willing to endure the suffering that came with that. Arm yourself with that way of thinking and make war against your own sin. Read on. Talking about this lifestyle of the Gentiles, of those who do not know God. Look at verse 4. He says, in all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when the Gentiles live like Gentiles. Let them be surprised when you don't live that way anymore. And I am troubled by this verse. Verse 4 troubles me because I don't think the world is surprised by our holiness generally. I, I don't think there is this element of surprise at our holiness. We as Christians, as evangelicals in particular, are not being maligned by the world in response to our holiness. They are maligning us because of our hypocrisy. They are maligning us because we claim to live with Christ-likeness. We claim to be new creatures. But we demonstrate the same or worse sinfulness as them. Brothers and sisters, we have been changed by God's grace. We can't go on living the same way. We can't go on running into the flood of sin. Some of your translations say the flood of debauchery. Did we not just talk about Noah and a flood? 
Is that flood a good thing if you're Gentile? Is that flood a good thing if you're outside the boat? No, it's a flood of judgment. They're surprised that we're not running with them into the waters of judgment. They're surprised that we live with Christ-likeness. Listen, believers, if you follow Jesus faithfully, you're going to lose some friends, probably. H.B. Charles said, you cannot be godly and popular at the same time. Teenagers, hear that and embrace it. You cannot be godly and popular at the same time. This is part of why Peter addresses his audience as strangers and aliens in this world. Even Christians in America are strangers and aliens in this world. We don't fit in here. We don't fit in here because we actually are citizens of a different land. We live according to different values. We have a different master. We have a different Lord. We don't fit in because we live according to a different standard. If you follow Jesus faithfully, you may lose some friends, but within the church, you get a whole new set of friends. Like you, you, if, if you're going to take seriously following Jesus, you may lose some friends. In fact, they may even malign you. They may, able see, may even say, oh, that goody-goody. Oh, that's so-and-so. Oh, he doesn't know. He doesn't know where the real fun is to be had. They may say all kinds of things about you. You may lose some of your old friends. But listen, in the church, you gain a whole new set of friends who are not just your friends. They're your family. They're your brothers and sisters. And they are walking the same road that you are walking. They are walking that narrow road that leads to life. And they will help you. These new friends in the church will help you fight your sin. And they will help you pursue godliness. They will help you arm yourself with the mindset of Christ so that you live according to the will of God and no longer for the lusts of men. You may lose some friends, but you gain some family. That's what we're called to be to each other, family, who help each other live with holiness and righteousness. The truth of the matter, though, is that when we live with genuine godliness, as new creatures in Christ, we're going to take some heat from the lost world. The Bible teaches us that the darkness hates the light. The Bible demonstrates that they hated Jesus and they will hate us the more we look like him. It will not be easy, but... In fact, read on. The, verse 5 starts with but. It says, In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Friends, it may seem like the world is winning, that there are a few true followers of Jesus and they are getting whipped every day. But judgment is coming. In fact, the judge is coming. And he will show the truth. He will vindicate his people. He will destroy his enemies. In fact, a few weeks ago, maybe even months ago now, in small group Bible study, we saw this really powerful text in 2 Thessalonians to the struggling church in Thessalonica who was taking a beating from the people around them. Look at what... God said through the Apostle Paul to them to encourage their hearts. He said in 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 3, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each of one of you toward one another grows even greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, 
it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. That's a pastorally helpful word for a struggling church to remind them that judgment is coming and that they are on the right side of that judgment. They may be on the wrong side of the culture. They may be on the wrong side of their neighbors as they seek to follow Jesus, as they live with holiness, but they will be on the right side of Jesus when he comes in flaming fire. And that's all that matters. Read on. Verse 6 says, For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. This verse also seems to be pastorally motivated and counters an argument that no doubt unbelievers were making and no doubt believers were struggling with, especially as they watched faithful followers of Jesus die, maybe even at the hands of persecutors, which if it wasn't already happening with Peter's audience, it would. Within the next 15 years, it would definitely happen. This is probably a reference to faithful followers who have died after suffering ridicule, rejection, even persecution. They died. They were faithful, and they died. They were faithful, and they were ridiculed, and they died. Same as their lost neighbors, who lived it up, went to every party, satisfied every fleshly lust. They died, and the faithful believers also died. The nagging question is, was it worth it? Was it worth it to walk the narrow road and suffer the whole way if all that happens is I die like everyone else dies? Was it worth it? Yes, it is worth it. Because even if the world judges you, even if the world condemns you, even if the world kills you because of the gospel, because of the gospel, and because of the grace of God, you will live. Look at what it says in this text. The gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead. Those faithful Christians who heard the gospel, believed the gospel, suffered for the gospel, and died. They're dead. That though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. This is why the gospel was preached. This is why the gospel was believed. So that you can have hope beyond this life beyond this world, so that you might live eternally. That's why the gospel was preached. Whether you're alive or dead, that's why the gospel was preached, so that you might have eternal life and so that you might live with faithfulness till that day comes. So, arm yourselves. That's the application. That's the singular command of this text. Arm yourselves. With what weapon? With what weapon shall I arm myself? Arm yourself with the attitude of Christ. That is a dedication to holy living, that is a commitment to fight sin and a submission to the will of God and endurance through persecution with joy because of eternal vindication. Arm yourself with the mind of Christ, the attitude of Christ. Well, how do I get that? How do I arm myself with that weapon? Where do I get that weapon? 
This is where you get that weapon. This is where you get that weapon. Through personal spiritual disciplines, you get that weapon. Well, if I've got that weapon, against whom do I wield that weapon? Not against the world. We're not out there to fight the world. We're not out here to fight each other either. We don't use the mind of Christ in our combat with each other. We use the mind of Christ to fight the war within. Pastor Dylan asked this question this week when we were talking about this text. He says, how often are you at war with the flesh? That's a great question. How often are you at war with the flesh? Oh, every night about 10 o'clock when I'm tired. Every minute of your life you are at war with the flesh. Every second of your day you are at war with the flesh. So how often do you need to be armed for that battle? Every minute, every second. You need to be armed with the mind of Christ to fight the war within against your own sinful tendencies so that you will live with holiness. In fact, that's application number two. Arm yourself and pursue practical holiness. Church, it's time. It's time to give up the old life of the world. It's time to give up the ways of the Gentiles. Time's up for living like the world. Repent, fight your sin, submit yourself to God's will, endure the pain that comes with this, and rejoice in the hope of eternal life. Church, repent, fight sin, submit to God, endure pain, and rejoice in the hope of eternal life. Guests, friends, who are outside, are not trusting in Christ, I want to tell you with as much compassion as possible, the road you are on leads to destruction. It may be a lot of fun. It may provide you pleasure on some level for some time. But the wide road with a lot of other folks, it leads to destruction. Christ died for sinners though. Christ died for sinners and so I'm going to invite you to repent of your sins. And trust in Jesus Christ today. Find new life. Find new friends. Find new hope in Christ alone. One of the most surprising things that happened this week as I was talking with some guys about this text is one of them said, this is the perfect Father's Day text. And I was like, what's wrong with you? There's nothing about fathers here. There's not a single word about fathers here. And he said, no, this is a perfect Father's Day text because dads are the ones that have to lead the way in this. If there's going to be a fight against sin, if there's going to be a fight for holiness, if there's going to be a revival of righteous Christian living within the church, dads are going to need to lead the way. Do it. It's a hard thing. It's a hard thing to fight the sin that's in you, to live with faithfulness to Jesus. It's a hard thing to do, but dads do hard things, right? Let's stand together and pray. Father, help us. You've called, you've called us to holiness. You've called us out of the old life into new life by your grace through faith in Jesus. You've, you've given us a new heart. You've given us new desires. We want to live that out, like really, and more and more every day. And so we need your help with that, and we trust that when we ask for your help to do what you've told us to do, that you'll provide that help, that you'll empower our pursuit of holiness for your glory. God, give us that. I pray that you bring conviction of sin and real repentance in this room today. That you will break us of our Gentile-like living and call us to live as your people in the midst of this broken world. God, I pray for encouragement for brothers and sisters.
who are walking faithfully and taking a beating from their friends. They've lost friends. They've been maligned. Oh, God, give them encouragement that that judgment from their neighbors is not the judgment that matters. That when it comes to the judgment that matters, they are on the right side and they will be vindicated and rewarded eternally with you. I pray that that will keep them on the course. I pray that we, you will use us to keep them on the course with our encouragement, that we will help them to live. And God, I pray for men and women and boys and girls who are outside. They're lost. They're on the wide road that leads to destruction. Oh God, wake them up like you did for us. Wake them up to the sin in their own life, to their separation from you. Oh God, wake them up to the beauties of the cross that Christ died for sinners. Oh God, give them faith to trust in Christ. Give them repentance to turn away from that old way and walk with you. God, save them for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.